Gamer family, uh, my name is Eric. For those of you whom I've never met, I look forward to meeting you. Please come and say hello after the service. Uh, if you would open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We've begun a new series in the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago, and I am beyond excited about it. <clears throat> um, before we get into the Scripture, a couple of things I want to share. First, I just want to say thank you to our service men and women. I know that Memorial Day is for the fallen brothers and sisters, and Veterans Day is for those of you whom have served, but you bear the memory of those whom have fallen. And we pray for you as you bear those memories. And we thank Jesus for those who have given the last full measure of service to quote a great man of our country's past. The last full measure of devotion to protect our freedoms. So I'd like to just thank Jesus for the service men and women who are here. Um, before we do, I know that you guys don't do it for the applause, but would you please, just so we can come up and, and afterwards just come up and say thank you, would you please just raise your hands so we know who we're praying for? Um, thank you. Can we, can we give a round of applause for you? Thank you. Jesus, thank you for our service, men and women, Lord, who have given so much so that we might be able to be here free today to proclaim Your Word, Lord, who have given so much to defend our freedoms, who bear on this day names of friends, of brothers and sisters who are not as fortunate as they. Lord, I pray that You would bind up those scars. We pray for the families who mourn the loss of loved ones. We thank You for their sacrifice for our freedom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, also, just uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Was that just a rousing time of worship or what? I mean, it is just picking low-hanging fruit to preach after a time of worship like that. Um, I could literally just pick anybody from the crowd and just say, come up and preach after a time of worship like that. And I'm confident that you can do a great job. I want to thank you for the time off the last couple of weeks. I don't feel that I was entitled to it. I don't feel that I was owed it. You graciously gave it to me, and I'm thankful for it. And I love those times to step away from being so entrenched in doing things for Jesus and just taking time to take stock and remembering who I am in Jesus. And those times are so precious. And I believe that pastors need to take those times to be refreshed in Jesus, to better be equipped to point people to Jesus and not just give lip service and we tell people to treasure Jesus. And he did some heart work in me during those two weeks. And a lot of it was timely, and it's going to bleed over into our teaching of Acts, because one of the primary things he was doing is reminding me, Eric, your name is not pastor, your name is Christian. It can become so easy in this profession and with this gifting to lose yourself and your identity and to begin to think that I am Pastor Eric. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. 
I am Eric and I am a Christian and I am honored to be a shepherd in this congregation. And that is it. You don't need qualifiers before Christian. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. They were radically content to be called Christian. They didn't need all of the titles of saying, I am a reformed, semi-premillennial, dispensational, semi-non-wherever-the-tribulation-falls Christian. They were just Christians. And today we are going to study the early Christians. So I am excited to be back in the pulpit and even more excited to be in the book of Acts. This week, we are going to be starting a series on the person, purpose, power, and preaching of the Holy Spirit. And for week one, we start off by looking at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just busting at the seams to share what the Lord has given me. And I think it's going to be pretty powerful as we open the Word together and we have a lot to cover. So I'm going to jump right in and I'm going to ask the Spirit's blessing of His Word. Holy Spirit, Please bless the preaching of your word. Come and anoint it in ways that, Lord, without you, these are just words from a man falling on deaf ears. Lord, I pray that the proclamation of your word would go forth by power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to point out something as we go to this passage that's so easy to miss and read past because we can be so eager to jump past it and get into the miraculous parts of this text. Look with me at verse 1. It says, And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And the thing that I'd like you to just take stock of before we get into all the fun, miraculous things in this text is they did what Jesus told them to do. Back in chapter 1, Jesus ordered them to gather and wait on the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what that meant. They didn't have a full understanding in order to be obedient. They obeyed even though they lacked a full understanding. That dismisses the idea that I hear so often in churchianity, which is, I am not doing more because I do not yet know more and he gave them a very simple command don't leave Jerusalem and wait on the promise of the father and you know what they didn't say well Jesus we need to know more about the promise of the father before we could possibly ever do that well Jesus now is not really a comfortable time to be waiting in Jerusalem because if you didn't notice they just nailed you to a cross So if we're waiting here and being identified with your name, it's probably not going to go well for us either. And if the Roman Empire, who has a tendency to come and crush things that they don't like, has all of the remainder of your disciples sitting together in one room, then we're kind of sitting ducks, eh? So a little bit uncomfortable of a question that you're asking us. They didn't say any of that. They had a little bit to go on, and they simply obeyed what Jesus gave them to obey. And that's noteworthy because I can't tell you how many times Christians have given or blamed their refusal to obey on a perceived lack of knowledge. And I'm not against knowledge. I've gone to school for 11 billion years, and I'm convinced that so much of what passes for discipleship 
is knowledge-based because making discipleship obedience-based would actually make people have to do something and they might be uncomfortable with that. And I think that issues like the slave trade or women's suffrage, you guys ever think like this? Like, what is that issue of this day? Anybody ever have those conversations? Are there things going on like that right now in our midst that we're going to look back on and say, how did the church miss it? Just like the church missed slavery. Just like the church missed the inequality of women for so long. And man, when I I think through that, I, I think that a big reason of it is that people think that they can continue to grow as disciples while holding personal comfort as a higher ideal than obedience to God's Word and excusing it because they are continuing to grow in knowledge. And I really believe that. You wouldn't believe how many conversations I have with Christians that come back to what makes them comfortable and what suits their personal preferences. Listen, I'm just going to be super duper clear about this. If you care more about what key the song was sang in, or the way that we do communion, or the way that somebody is dressed up here, or the color of the carpet, then you care about the fact that your neighbors are dying without the hope of the gospel and perishing and going to hell, or you care about unreconciled relationships with your brothers and sisters, then you are not growing as a disciple, you're growing as a consumer. Do you, I, I, I want to, can I say that any clearer? Was that, was that clear enough? Um, most people don't need to know more. They need to be committed to obeying the things that they already know. And then God in His grace gives you more to steward as you commit to learning and obeying it. Jesus didn't go around the room and say, you know what, I'd really like to take stock of your personal preferences, see what makes you comfortable, get a consensus, and then I will ask you to wait in the place that makes you most comfortable. (laughs) Sorry, folks. That's not Christianity. Well, no. Sorry, folks. That is Christianity. Sorry, folks. That's not the way Jesus thought Christianity should look. And those things that Jesus asked were not all that comfortable. And guess what? Jesus seemed really, really okay with that. And so am I. Your comfort is not all that important. Next thing we see in verse 1 is that they waited on the Spirit. So they were committed to obeying, but they were also committed to waiting on the Lord. So if we're not committed to waiting on the Lord, how do you know that what is happening in your life that you call the Lord is actually the Lord and not just indigestion? How do you know that it's the Lord and not just some funky feeling going on in your life that you want to just stamp the name of Yahweh on it and say the Lord is leading me to do this? And as we're going to see, by doing what Jesus told them to do and waiting on Jesus, He showed up in a big, big way. Do you want to see that, Redeemer family? Do you want to see Jesus show up in a big, big way. One of the things that I often struggle with is just how not supernatural Christianity can be. 
And I look in this, and it says that they waited on the Lord, and God showed up. And man, do I want God to show up. And here we see the beginnings of a recipe. And it says, as they obeyed and waited on the Lord, man, did He show up in ways that they did not expect. Look with me at verses 2-4. through four. It says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided the house uh, and divided tongues uh, as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Obviously, the way the Lord showed up here is unique and it sparks questions. Everybody wants to talk about tongues when you get to this passage. And in Reformed, Evangelical, Bible-believing cultures, it quickly turns into a conversation about what tongues is not when we get to passages like this. First of all, I want to say that I am a believer in the full range of the gifts of the Spirit and that all of them are still in operation today in 2016. It is our church's doctrinal position that the perpetuity of the gifts continues even today and still operate. They may not be normative all the time, but they still are in continuation. And the biblical arguments saying that they have ceased are weak and mostly reactionary and carnal, and they were created because of abuses against the gifts of the Spirit in some areas of the charismatic church out there. Most of you have probably seen some weird stuff on TV or in person followed by a pastor who's so greasy that he would probably make a politician blush who then asks you for a bunch of money and tells you that you can then make people fall all over the room by just waving a jacket at them. Which is why I took my jacket off, by the way, because that's going to be the application of my sermon. Um, it's not. I'm lying. Um, it, that's obviously not what I'm talking about, is that kind of goofy shenanigans. Secondly, just because a gift is misused doesn't make it mad. It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't mean that we should just throw it out. And that's the logic that's often used for people that want to be dismissive of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And I would just submit to you that that is not logic that you apply to anything else in your life. And if you think it is, I'm going to test it. Is money ever misused? I want to hear a verbal answer from you people then take it out of your wallet and hand it to the person next to you. And if you came here broke and you're sitting next to Richie McRichigans, you lucked out. Because money's bad, right? It's misused. So therefore, we can't use money because money's polluted. No. Churches ask for money all the time, don't they? Well, how, why don't they apply the same logic to money that they apply to the gifts? This, wow, that's weird. Seems like something's wrong in their exegesis. Third, the passage has absolutely nothing to do with what tongues are not. There are other occurrences in this book that will lend itself to teaching about what tongues are not, but why teach about something that the passage doesn't approach? My job as a teacher of the Bible is to teach the passage. It's not to teach what's not in the passage. The biggest question I have before getting into teaching 
about what it is, is why approach a beautiful passage from a defensive posture? It's what we've done with Genesis 1 and 2 ever since a man named Charles Darwin showed up on the scene, and we have sucked the life out of that beautiful passage. And when I went to Bible school, you would have thought that God wrote Genesis 1 and 2 so that he could do battle with Charles Darwin. It was like God was sitting in the heavens saying, oh no, what will I do? There's this guy named Darwin that's going to show up that might outsmart me in the 19th century, so I better put this in the Bible so that Christians can do nothing but sit around and argue about a bunch of stuff that I never intended this passage to be used for anyway. And when I went to Bible school to learn to exegete the beauty and majesty of scriptures, that passage was almost wrung clean of its beauty and innocence of me because I was taught only from a defensive posture how to handle that passage. And by taking this defensive posture against passages like this, what it does is it robs the beauty and majesty that this is a story about God. This isn't a story about how to be defensive in our faith. This is an offensive passage. The kingdom's moving forward in this passage. The kingdom isn't moving backwards. It's not on its heels in this passage. The kingdom's advancing in this passage. So why not advance it? Why be defensive in the way that we teach it? I get excited about this stuff. When you think about it, man, Pentecost is like Holy Ghost Christmas. And I don't mean that to be irreverent. <laughs> I do think it's funny. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean it to... But check this out. I'm going I'm to make a case that Pentecost is Holy Ghost Christmas. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit came into existence at Pentecost. That would be silly. Genesis chapter 1, that the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. So he was right there, right in the beginning of the Bible. Just like Jesus didn't come into existence at Christmas. The angel of the Lord, Yahweh, was existed in the form of Jesus in the Old Testament, but he came to us in a new form to accomplish a new work at Pentecost. And tongues was the star of Bethlehem to announce his precious new arrival. So a couple of points. I didn't get that from a commentary, so I'm excited about that. I'm going to start calling Pentecost Holy Ghost Christmas whenever I get to this passage. So a couple of points about the Holy Ghost uh, and I like the term Holy Ghost because I, I, I think we have just so taken supernaturality out of the teaching of the Holy Spirit that I want to just press on your sensibilities and push some supernaturality into it. So we're going to call him the ghost in this passage. So a couple points about the ghost generally, and then we'll get into a couple things specifically that are taking place at Pentecost. First is tongues is a gift of the Spirit so therefore it will always be in line with the giver of the gift. You will never see a usage of that gift that is biblical, that is not in line with the biblical giver of that gift. And secondly, you will never see a usage of tongues that is not specifically in line with the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So what did the gift of tongues do? What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit? I'm glad that you asked. Thank you. I actually have eight things to share with you that were the purpose of the Holy Spirit that he bestowed in Acts 2, 1 through 13 that we see through the bestowing of the gift of tongues. The first is the Spirit reminded them 
of something that the religious people had forgotten. And that's that the worship of the one true God was supposed to be a supernatural experience. Look again at verses 2 through 4. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty... You ever met... I just want to be honest since I'm stumbling on my words as I read this. You ever memorize scripture in a different version and then try to read it and and it just comes out like Spanglish? So we're just going to call ESV the Eric Stockton version um, today because I'm just struggling here. So um, be with me in my struggles, Lord. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and each of them began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I can't tell you how many times in running in pretty conservative evangelical circles I've heard people make fun of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. It's sad. It really is. Because first of all, we already have an accuser of the brethren. We don't need more in our churches. Secondly, is it really all that bad that people want to see supernaturality infused into their faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not saying that the abuses should not be called out. I'm not saying that the way that things are done wrong should not be corrected and made right. But I am saying that mocking just maybe is not the best way to go about bringing correction in these areas. And this alone would be worthy of a sermon, that worship is not just about having all of the right pieces in place. There should be room for the supernatural to break in. That doesn't mean I want you to stand up and start speaking in tongues in the middle of my sermon. But there should be room for the supernatural to break in to our services. Now, if that did happen, I don't know what we would do. Um, I guess we would test it with the Word of God, wouldn't we? And see if it was biblical. The second point that we see about the Spirit is the Spirit began to recreate that which was broken by sin. Look with me at verses 5 through 11. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation, under heaven. And in this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are all, not, all these not speaking Galileans? And how is this that we hear them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome. You know what's funny is I couldn't read those first three verses, but I read that. That might have been tongues right there. (laughs) Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. If you're familiar with the story of Babel and Genesis... Everybody formally spoke one language, but they refused to spread out and multiply, unlike the church today. I digress. Um, So they erected this image in their own glory 
to try to reach the heavens. So God did for them what they refused to do for themselves. And he spread them out and he multiplied them across the face of the earth. And he confused their languages. When he did this, he made sure that they could no longer speak and hear in the same language. He confused it as he scattered the people. So something that was once beautiful became very confusing and it became very broken because of sin. But here we see something that was very confusing made beautiful by grace. All those scattered languages were brought together in one room, but this time God did give them, did not give them the same language. This time God gave them the same gospel which transcended language. God was recreating and restoring that which was broken at Babel, and the people in the room were observing all of this as they heard each other babble. Isn't that fascinating? How amazing is our God? Only this time, it was not so that they could create something in their image to try to reach up to the heavens for their own glory. Instead, it was a reverse tower, a strong tower named Jesus that reached down from the heavens, God's image and God's glory. God was literally recreating that which was broken by sin right in front of them by the power of His Spirit. And brothers and sisters, I want to boldly remind you that God is still in the business of restoring that which is broken by the power of sin, by His Spirit, and by the preaching of the Gospel. That's not stopped. Each person in this room who has grabbed a hold of the Gospel is a testimony to the fact that God is restoring that which is broken by sin. Amen? God is doing this, not God was doing this. We don't look at Acts 2 and say, look what God did. We look at this and say, look what God does. God is doing this. He still does this. And there are so many testimonies of this grace right in this room. If you're here and you are scattered and you are confused like they were in Babel, God wants to bring restoration to that brokenness through relationship with His Son. If that's you, can I ask you, what are you waiting for? Why do you continue to dive headlong into the confusion when God wants to bring Himself into the midst of that chaos and bring order to it that only Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him can bring. Third point that we see on the purpose of the Spirit is the Spirit empowered the preaching of the Gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and were perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? These people stood amazed by the mighty works of God in Christ. This was not dead orthodoxy like the Pharisees and the scribes were preaching. This was the gospel. This was the power of God unto salvation. The Spirit was empowering them to tell the mighty deeds of God in a way that brought people into amazement. 
That's powerful preaching. And it made me stop and ask some questions. The biggest question being, why will so many people walk out of churches this morning, right now, all across the world, not being amazed by the power of the gospel? There's a lot of directions I could go with that. Communication is a two-way street, right? At least a two-way street. The communicator and the hearer have to be on the same page, but here you see a third party that's bringing that communication and fusing it together, and that's the power behind the message, the ghost himself. But as for the preacher, there is no excuse for limp, powerless preaching in pulpits of Christian churches. Amen? I want to read you guys a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, We must at times speak lightning and prove ourselves sons of thunder. We must bring on the storm and the tempest in the hearts of man if fair summertide discoursing will not touch them. Ah, that's gospel proclamation and preaching. There is no excuse for powerless preaching in pulpits that claim the name of Jesus that are holding up the Word of God in that pulpit. Amen? The fourth thing we, say, we see is the Spirit enabled the hearing of the Gospel. In verse 11, it says again, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The hearing of the Gospel, not just the preaching of the Gospel, the hearing of the Gospel, you need to know this, is in itself a divine transaction. He must empower the preaching of the Gospel, but He must also empower the ability to hear the Gospel. Without the Holy Spirit empowering it, you are dead in your trespasses. Do you know what dead people look like? They look like this. You know what they don't do? They don't hear things. They lay there dead. So the Spirit had to quicken their hearts because you and your death only knew how to hear the songs of death. But the Spirit came in and He marinated that heart and regenerated that heart. And when you were obstinate and stubborn and wanted to run from Him, He ran faster than you. And He grabbed a hold of you. And He made you hear a message that you did not want to hear because He loved you that much and continues to love you that much and holds you close by His sovereign power and grace. The Spirit has to make us alive and regenerate our hearts and give us the ability to hear because dead people don't hear stuff. And the beauty... There's this beautiful heavenly transaction that's taken place right in front of us in this text. But it's taken place right in front of us right now as the power of God goes forth from the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel just like it did 2,000 years ago. I mean, it, it's really amazing to think about. Those who were previously fragmented and scattered were now hearing the gospel. And family, I, I, I just want to say before moving on, when somebody hears the gospel, 
though it may not look like this, it is no less miraculous than what you are reading in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and the rest of the chapter that we'll look at in the weeks to come. When a rebel can be stopped dead in their tracks and be caused to do an about face and submit to the Son, that's still a miracle. That's no less of a miracle than it ever was that will never stop being a miracle. And when people ask me, have you ever seen a miracle in your life? I'm like, I'm saved. You should have seen me. I wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. I wasn't some pious pilgrim searching. I was a rebel shaking my fist at the heavens saying, who are you? I want nothing to do with you. And he said, guess what? I want something to do with you, and I'm bigger than you, and I win. So yeah, I've seen a miracle. And any of you who claim the name of Jesus have seen a miracle too. The Spirit did that. Guess what? Because he loves you. Did you hear that? The Trinitarian God is crazy about you. May you never leave church without hearing those words. People love to just bash on Billy Graham. I don't know why. I guess because people like to pick on stuff because they're bitter, angry people inside. But one thing that the dudes never closed the sermon without saying is God loves you. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are crazy about you. And that's what we see in this text. The ghost is taking the wax out of our ears and taking the crust off of our hearts in ways that show us that he longs to bathe us in his grace. The very fact that you could hear the gospel and it doesn't just fall dead on the floor when we preach it is a testimony to the fact that our Father, his Son, and his Spirit are madly in love with you. Amen? The fifth purpose of the Spirit we see is that the Spirit demonstrated God's heart for diversity and the destruction of racial division through the Gospel. I'm going to let you in a little secret. Most different Middle Eastern cultures don't like each other. Does that shock you? <laughs> just in case nobody's watched the news since TVs have been invented. Did I just blow anyone's mind? I'm going to take it a step further. Racism's a problem outside of the Middle East. We may have broken down the laws of segregationalism in our country, but in many ways we're just as segregated as we've ever been. I say this with a broken heart, and there's no topic, lately at least, that is... I wept putting together this topic because it's horrible. But I fear in recent years we've gone backwards instead of forging ahead in this critical area. So it was a miracle in itself that this diverse group of people were actually brought together in one room at Pentecost. Again, this goes so far beyond your comfort. 
God's Spirit has not changed. God still has the same heart for diversity and the destruction of our sinful, stupid, racial divisions through the powerful preaching and proclamation of the Gospel. The church has to lead the way on this, folks. It has to. We have to be a people who can intelligently dialogue about race and racial tension. Years ago, Dr. King said, it's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I have to believe that this will change in my day because if it doesn't, then all it means is that we've gone backwards since Pentecost. I'm willing to fight for this and devote the rest of my life to fight for it. Are you? Amen? One of the greatest witnesses that we can give the world is for them to walk into the church and see a box of crayons and just see a radically, ethnically diverse, socially diverse, socially economically diverse a people group that is just not homogenized. It's one of the best witnesses that we can give to this world that we didn't just come together on our own, that the Spirit did this. People come together with people that look and think like them on their own all the time. Go drive down any street in this town and you'll see clubs that people do that. The church is not meant to be one of those. Number six, the Spirit brought amazement and awe through the preaching of the gospel. In verse 12, it says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? I love that. They were willing to live in the tension. It's one of the reasons why this passage is taught so poorly so often is because there's tension in it. We don't like tension, so we're just like, just systematize the tension for me, Pastor. No. They didn't systemize the tension. They said, what does this mean? This is, this is confusing. There's, there's some, some weird stuff going on. One of the biggest reasons that the gospel spreads so rapidly is because people were in awe of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's why we gather on Sunday morning to worship, so that we might taste and see the God who is both transcendent and imminent, so that we might be brought to that place of awe, and that place of awe might go with us and empower us for the proclamation of the mighty works of this God who is mighty to save. And let me just say before moving on, if our heart is not brought to a place of awe of God, you will not share that place of awe with others, because you cannot share what you do not possess. Number seven, the Spirit revealed that the true heart, the Spirit revealed the true hearts of man through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 13, it says, But others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. That's just a colloquialism, saying they're drunk. That's what's going on. These people are loaded. Not everybody was on board with what the Spirit was doing that day and what the Spirit was revealing. And some people might have just been confused and were in the midst of of their confusion because you see that a lot of people end up actually getting saved later on in this passage and man there is beauty in coming alongside of people 
who are living in the midst of confusion. It is our job to come alongside of and be a presence of people who are living in the midst of confusion about who God is in the midst of this world. That's what a Christian is sent to do. That's why Jesus said, Father, so as you send me, so as I send them in the midst of this world, so that by all means necessary, he might save some. And the eighth and final point on the purpose of the Spirit from our text is the Spirit magnified the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to pick up our portion of the text next week, but this will probably be the biggest reoccurring theme throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit always magnifies Jesus. The Spirit does not magnify His own gifts. That's why the discussion this morning was centered on the Gospel and not the gift that was used for the presentation of the Gospel. Because the gift is not the focus. Jesus is always the focus. The gifts are a means to an end. That's where the people that go wrong get it wrong. The gift is not an end to itself. The gift is a means to an end, and the end is Jesus. And if we don't get to Jesus, we've led you astray, family. We've taken you to a wrong place. The map didn't take you to where it was supposed to take you. So let me give you a couple of questions in conclusion to make this stuff practical. Have you been in a place where you're willing to wait in the Lord? Or do you just run ahead of him and ask him to break, to bless your breakneck speed? That's life on the Jersey Shore, folks. I'm, that's an honest question. I wish more people would take stock of that question. Because, man, I would think, as I just said, our identity is Christian. I would think that we are called by another name, and then that name is busy. Because so often I ask people, hey, man, where you been? What you been doing? And I'm holding up a mirror as I say this as well. I've been busy. That's cool. You've been saying that since 1996. This ain't a season no more. When there have been like eight presidential administrations and you're still calling yourself busy, um, it may be a pattern. It may be a lifestyle. It may be idolatry. Number two, is there anything in your life that you would mark as evidence of supernatural pervading your life. We have a, the ghost is living inside of you if you name the name of Jesus. The one who spoke in a universe fell out of his mouth. He's resident president in your life, man. Come on with that. Is there an evidence that he's oozing himself out of you? Number three is the spirit restoring that which is broken by sin in your life. The Spirit's there. I'm not saying we're going to be sinless. I'm not even going to give you that corny colloquialism that we should just sin less. It's true. But we should be convicted. There should be this work that's going on where he is bringing wholeness where there was brokenness. Number four is the Spirit destroying prejudices or a judgmental spirit as you develop a deeper understanding of the gospel. I, the reason why I got so passionate about that issue is a prejudiced person is not understanding the gospel. A bigot does not understand the gospel. If you evaluate people and put them in bins on the basis of pigmentation, then the gospel has not pervaded your heart. Number five, has the Spirit brought you to a place of awe and amazement of who God is and the beauty 
of his gospel. And really, honest question, when's the last time we're just in worship? People tell me this all the time, like, man, I just wanted to fall down in worship. What's stopping you? Why don't you? Maybe if you did, somebody else would feel the liberty too. Man, guess where I see people doing that? The Bible. All the time. When's the last time we've been brought to a place of awe of his beauty? Two last questions. Is the Spirit empowering you, enabling you, and motivating you to share the good news of the gospel? You can't get through the book of Acts without seeing that the Spirit came for that purpose. He didn't come so that we could just gather into churches and say, this is the way I want my church to look. This is the way I want to be a member of this church. This is what I want you to do. Dance for me, monkey, dance. That's not what church is about, man. The Spirit filled these people for the proclamation of the wonders of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And last question is the Spirit magnifying the beauty and majesty of our Savior as we humbly walk in awe of His precious gospel. That's what communion is for. That's why we close with that as a response so we could taste and see, so we could actually come and have a sensory perception of the beauty of the cross. Jesus, thank You for Your Spirit that You sent Him, that You did not leave us alone in this world. Father, thank you for sending the Son to die for us, to give us new life. Jesus, thank you for reconciling us to the Father. Spirit, thank you for taking these dead bones and dead flesh and giving us new life. It's in the name of this Trinitarian God we pray. Amen.